Good morning. Uh, the scripture reading uh, for this morning is Luke chapter 2, and we're going to do the whole chapter, so verse 1 through to 52, if you've got your Bibles handy, or you can look behind me here. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria, and everyone went to their own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in clothes and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all people. Today, in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. And this will be the sign to you. You'll find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Suddenly, a great company of the heavenly hosts appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth, peace to those on whom his favor rests. When the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. When they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told them about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary treasured up all the things and pondered them in her heart. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen, which were just as they had been told. On the eighth day, when it came time to circumcise the child, he was named Jesus, the name the angel had given him before he was conceived. When the time came for the purification rites required by the law of Moses, Joseph and Mary took him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, Every firstborn male is to be consecrated to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice in keeping with what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon who was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel and the Holy Spirit was on him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. Moved by the Spirit, he went into the temple courts. When the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him what the custom of the law required, Simeon took him into his arms and praised God. And he said, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all nations, a light for the revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people, Israel." The child's father and mother marveled at what he had said about him. Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, This child is destined to cause the falling and the rising of many in Israel, and to be a sign that will be spoken against, so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed, and a sword will pierce your own soul too. 
There was also a prophet, Anna, the daughter of Penuel, of the tribe of Asher, and she was very old. She had lived with her husband 70 years after her marriage, and then was a widow until she was 84. She never left the temple, but worshipped day and night, fasting and praying. Coming up to them at that very moment, she gave thanks to God and spoke about the child to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. When Joseph and Mary had done everything required by the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee to their own town of Nazareth, and the child grew and became strong. He was filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was on him. Every year, Jesus' parents went to Jerusalem for the festival of the Passover. When he was 12 years old, they went up to the festival according to the custom. After the festival was over, while his parents were returning home, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem, but they were unaware of it. Thinking he was in their company, they traveled on for a day. Then they began looking for him among their relatives and friends. When they did not find him, they went back to Jerusalem to look for him. And after three days, they found him in the temple courts, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. Everyone who heard him was amazed at his understanding and his wisdom. When his parents saw him, they were astonished. His mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. Why were you searching for me, he asked. Didn't you know I had been in my father's house? But they did not understand what he was saying to them. Then he went down to Nazareth with them and was obedient to them. But his mother treasured all these things in her heart, and Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favour with God and men. Thank you, Stephen. Good morning again and welcome. It's good to see you. We are continuing our way through Luke's gospel and we come here to a very happy time, the arrival of Jesus. We're titled this message, Looking for Jesus, because we're going to see in this text three instances of people who go looking for Jesus. And in each instance, we're going to see what happens when they find him and how that might prompt us to respond in faith. Uh, the gospel, the good news that is told us is that because Jesus came, we can see God. The prophet Isaiah said that this child would be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. And so the arrival of this child would bring with him the ability for us to know God. The gospel means that all who seek salvation can find it in Jesus. All those who would seek it can find it in him. But the corollary is also true that, if we, that we cannot see God if we don't find Jesus. And so this text before us this morning is driven forward by this question in the narrative of how do we find salvation in Jesus? It's people looking for Jesus. And it's a question that we're invited into in each instance. And I encourage you as we go through this story to consider being along with these people on the journey as they are searching for Christ 
and what it might mean and what the Spirit might be prompting you to do. But the big headline for this whole story is about the arrival of the Savior, the arrival of Emmanuel. There is an inscription in the British Museum that comes from about this time, and the inscription tells us that there was someone who was born who was the Son of God, and that his birth brought good news to the people, literally gospel news to the people. Now, if I asked you this morning, who was that about, you'd probably say the Sunday school answer, Jesus. But actually, the inscriptions that you'll find in the British Museum refer to Caesar Augustus. You see, he was the first Roman emperor to instigate the cult of emperor worship. He conceived of himself as a god. He talked about his reign as being gospel, good news for the people. He talked about bringing peace and joy being the answer to people's prayers. So as Luke writes this portion of his gospel, as he announces the arrival of Jesus, it's no coincidence that he uses the terms that Caesar himself used, except God's story is gonna run a little bit differently. You see, there's two pronouncements that begin, two pronouncements of a king. One pronouncement is that of a ruler who demands everyone to present themselves before him that he might number them so that he might tax them. And the second pronouncement comes announcing that the king has presented himself to the people, not that he might tax them, but that he might rescue them. And so as Luke often does in his writing of the gospel, he's weaving his telling of the story of salvation almost silently, almost imperceptibly in a context that is dominated by people who think they are in charge. But the good news, brothers and sisters, is that because Jesus came, we can see God, we can know him, which is not something we should take for granted. That God is finally with us, but it, it also means that if we can't find Jesus, we won't see God. So I'm going to uh, reference this morning that in these three instances, we see that there are signs given to reveal the identity of Jesus. We're gonna find Jesus if we follow the signs, and the signs that are given reveal Jesus' identity as Savior, as Messiah, and as Lord. The signs come to us following three testimonies in each of these instances. So in these three scenes where we have Jesus' Jesus's parents moving from north to south, in each of these scenes, we're going to hear a testimony of the nature and the identity of Jesus. And in each of these scenes, we're going to be prompted to consider an aspect of his identity and of his character. These three scenes of people who are looking for Jesus. I invite you now to pray with me as we go to God's word. Lord, would you bless us as we consider what you've revealed to us in the scriptures. May we be strengthened for salvation. May you make us wise unto salvation, that we would know you and be a light in your world. To the glory of Christ we pray, amen. 
as we come to the text, Luke chapter 2. The first scene comes in verses 1 to 20. And in this scene, we have shepherds who are looking for a Savior. That's the first group of people. Shepherds, they are looking for the Savior. Now, we've already sketched out the story. Mary and Joseph, as you know, were forced to travel to go back to Jerusalem, uh, to Bethlehem, excuse me. And while they're in Bethlehem, which is about 110 kilometers from Nazareth, while they're there in Bethlehem, uh, Mary comes to the time of giving birth. She gives birth. She places the baby Jesus. She wraps him in cloths and lays him in a manger, which is, which is a feed box for, for animals. But Mary uh, is not aware at the time of what the Lord was doing. He had sent his angels to make the announcement public. You know, a lot of us send birth announcements so that people know that, that the child has come into the world. Well, God's birth announcement didn't go to the people that we would have expected it to go to. It went to shepherds. And I realized that in the church and in ministry, we can sort of glorify shepherds and glamorize them. You know, shepherds, they, they care for people. They care for souls. You know, a pastor ought to shepherd. And you might have gifts of shepherding. We've sort of elevated this idea of a shepherd. But in Jesus' day, to be a shepherd was not to be a respected person. To be a shepherd meant you were on the margins of society. I'm going to give you, give you just a couple evidences for that. Shepherds were roaming they didn't really have a permanent home. They lived outdoors. They, they stayed outside. They were people who you would be on your guard against. So if you were traveling and you suddenly found yourself in the company of shepherds, you might start grabbing for your belongings and making sure that they were on you or hidden. It was partly because of this that shepherds weren't allowed to testify in court. The testimony of a shepherd wasn't to be believed. They were truly on the margins of society, even as they lived in the margins of the city and the culture. But nevertheless, God chooses to make the birth, birth announcement known to them. And as he makes that announcement known, the angel appears and he, the glory of the Lord shines around them. They're terrified, but the angel says, don't be afraid. I bring you good news that's going to bring great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. A Savior for the shepherds. A Savior born to you. They weren't looking for a Savior. <laughs> they were looking after the sheep. Yet this announcement comes to them. And they tell them, this will be the sign. You'll find the baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Suddenly, a great company of the heavenly hosts appeared. Imagine if someone's on the front here speaking to you, and suddenly behind me, the wall disappears, and there's a vast army. That's what it means when it says there was a great company of angels. It's not as if there's just a big throng of them sort of hanging out, gathering around. No, this is the armies of heaven, and they're in a company. It's a, it's a military term. They're lined up in formation. The armies of heaven gathered not for a purpose of militarization, but a purpose of celebration. The armies of heaven arrayed, and what are they singing in one voice? Glory to God in the highest heaven, and peace on earth to those on whom his favor rests. This event, they say, echoes in the halls of heaven and shakes the ground beneath the shepherd's feet. This is truly important news. 
So the shepherds are left with this announcement that comes to them out of nowhere, and they're left, what do they do? Verse 15, when the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. When they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told them about this child, and all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things they'd heard and seen, which were just as they had been told. The shepherds were seeking Jesus. They were told to look for a savior. And for the shepherds, finding Jesus is exhilarating. It's life-giving. And for many people who have been brought into the family of God, their experience is something like this. Like the shepherds, they were just going about their tasks and their daily business, and suddenly, from out of nowhere almost, they are given news of a heavenly nature. Their eyes are open to a spiritual reality, and, and they are told to go look because the Savior has come. And they go searching. And in their searching, they're looking for a sign but notice the sign that the angel said wasn't simply even the fact that they'd seen the heavenly host. It wasn't a, a, a star like the Magi would get in Matthew's gospel. The sign was actually quite ordinary. The sign was a little bit strange. Listen to the way Spencer describes it. He says, the sign of God's salvation, the main event to see and know, is that of a flesh and blood infant boy swathed in cloth strips made from plant fibers and lying in a wood box for, for feeding working animals. This is the purpose of that sign. And that sign, Spencer would say, If you want to know God fully, you cannot know God fully unless you know him there, in the feed box, in with the animals, and the smell of dung and hay and flies. This is the sign. This is what the shepherds were sent to find, a boy. There's your savior. I don't know about you, but I'm challenged by those words because when we want to find a savior, we, we often look to the, to the one that we think is the biggest and the strongest and the tallest, like, like Samuel going through Jesse's sons and seeing the firstborn and saying, surely it's that one. And well, no, maybe it's that one. But, but here the sign is the boy in the feed trough wrapped in organic plant fiber cloths. That's the sign of the Savior. And for many people, they would never go looking for Jesus, but the news hits them and, and, and they realize that God loves even me, even me on the margins. He has come to find me and he has come to rescue me. And for you, it's exhilarating. 
and you can't help but talk and speak about Jesus. But the next scene that we come to in verses 22 to 40 show us another group of people looking for Jesus, but they're looking for Jesus in a different way, you see, because here we have worshipers who are awaiting the Messiah. Worshippers awaiting the Messiah. Verses 22 to 40. This is some 40 days after Mary has given birth to Jesus. The law required that she was to be purified. And the law also required that they were to present Jesus to the Lord. This is because of what God had told them that they were to do, that every firstborn male was to be consecrated. Just as God had struck down the firstborn of Egypt, in the, pl- in the last plague on Passover night, so God claimed the firstborn of every family in Israel. The firstborn male of every man and every beast belonged to God. And so Jesus is presented, he's, he's consecrated, he's set apart for the Lord at the temple. So Mary and Joseph come down and Luke records a little bit about their circumstance and we see that they offer a pair of doves and two young pigeons, which was the least expensive offering that they could give. And here this this humble mother and her humble husband are there with a child who's less than two months old. And they meet a man who's been waiting for a very long time to see something. You see, this man, Simeon, he's given no title. We don't know that he's a priest. He's not told that he's a scribe or a teacher of the law or anything. All we know about Simeon is that he was a devout man. He was a righteous man and that he was waiting for the consolation of Israel. You see, whereas the shepherds just suddenly got hit from out of nowhere with this lightning bolt of news that the Savior had come, Simeon had been waiting a long, long time, hanging on to the promises of God waiting for the consolation of Israel. And Simeon, in his waiting, he is worshiping. If you want to be a participant in the plan of God, worshiping, being present with his people, choosing the path of righteousness. Simeon here now finds himself in the path of the Spirit, who's mentioned three times. We see that the Spirit was on him, on this man, Simeon. And then verse 26, we see that it had been revealed to Simeon by the Spirit that he would not die before he'd seen the Lord's Messiah. If you would have said, their Messiah is in this temple right now, and you would have surveyed everybody who was there, I wonder how many people would have picked the baby. There was a big group of people looking for the Messiah. And you could imagine the hopes that they had. Someone who would kick the Romans out of Rome. Someone who would bring independence and power and majesty and bring the glory back to Israel. They were looking probably for a David, weren't they? Someone who could knock over their Goliaths. But Simeon, moved by the Spirit, is given understanding, and he's actually physically moved. He's prompted by the Spirit to go into the temple at the very time that Jesus is being presented by Mary and Joseph. And there's this meeting in the courtyard, and in this meeting, Simeon takes the Lord in his arms, 
And he praises God, saying, Sovereign Lord, verse 29, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace. You see, this is what a worshiper wants. A worshiper doesn't need to know the whole picture. A worshiper doesn't need to know every single detail. The worshiper of God just wants to know the assurance that God's plans are going to come to fruition. And Simeon, even though he's not going to see this child grow up, and he's not going to witness the miracles that Jesus is going to do, even though he's not going to see him hanging on the cross, or even though he's not going to hear testimony to his resurrection from the dead, this man Simeon says, I have seen your salvation, and you can now send me away in peace. God, I know you've got it. It's the heart of a worshiper. You may now dismiss your servant in peace, for my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all nations, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and the glory for your people Israel. Think about this for a moment. Here is a devout Jewish man standing in the Jewish temple holding the Jewish Messiah, and he is given utterance of the Spirit of God to pronounce that this is not just the Messiah who will deliver Israel, but this is the light of revelation for everyone, including the Gentiles. His view is expanded. Who would see that staring at a baby? God prepares his people. You see, someone like that had to have been waiting, had to have been hoping, had to have been searching, had to have been resting and trusting in God. And in his devotion to the Lord, he's rewarded. Oh, how happy are the saints who are devoted to the Lord. And when they see glimpses of God's plan coming together, they joy and they delight and they rejoice. I don't know how long it took the shepherds to find Jesus, presumably not too long. It took Simeon a long time to see Jesus. But he waited patiently. And here we have another worshiper, a worshiper, Anna, who is a a, a prophet of the tribe of Penuel. And Anna was so regular in the temple, she was practically part of the furniture. If you showed up in the temple, you'd just say, oh, that's Anna. That's where she sits. (laughs) That's what she does. And here is Anna, and she had been there. Notice, after her husband dies, she becomes a widow. And in her devotion, she doesn't see herself as somehow now second class or useless. She, She devotes the entirety of her being to fasting and praying and worshiping the Lord. And she, verse 38, comes up to them at the very same time, and she too joins and gives thanks to God and spoke about the child to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Israel. And here's a woman testifying about the Redeemer of Israel, the one who would bring them back, standing next to a man who has just testified about the glory of Israel and the light to the Gentiles. And here they are, staring at this infant boy, speaking of the marvelous, glorious plan of God. Do they seem happy to you? 
they seem full of joy to me. You know, oftentimes we think of devoting ourselves to God as boring or as something that's going to leave us empty or, or something that's going to cause us to miss out on the things that the world has to offer. And here's a woman who lost her husband very early in life and spent the rest of her life worshiping God. Does she seem sad to you? She's rejoicing and she's celebrating. So in the first scene that Luke gives us, we have a supernatural testimony from heavenly beings who dwell in the presence of God. They testify to the identity of this boy as the Savior. And here we have in the temple, we have two image bearers of God, a man and a woman, representative giving testimony as what was required, two witnesses under the law, human testimony to the identity of this son, that this child is not just the Savior, he is the Messiah, he's the long-awaited one. And for these worshipers, finding Jesus is comforting. It's comforting. Because in Jesus, the plan of God comes together. And they see it all fleshed out. But there's a sign that's given by Simeon, and he says that this child is going to be a sign. He's been appointed to be a sign that will be spoken against. The first sign in this passage showed where to find Jesus, how they would know they were at the right place. This sign speaks of the purpose of Jesus and what he's going to do. And Simeon says that he will be a controversial sign. But Simeon is not simply predicting Jesus' career. He is speaking to the nature and purpose of his ministry and his work because he said that in speaking against this sign, there will be a revealing of the hearts of men and women. So that you can funnel the entirety of humanity's relationship with God into one simple question. Who is Jesus to you? Because in the identification of Jesus Christ, the human heart is unveiled. It's brought into the light. Simeon looks at Jesus and he says, here is the one who's going to cut through religiosity and through ritual, through experience, through tradition, through custom. He's going to cut through all of that and he's going to reveal those who worship God in spirit and in truth. But this sign will not be universally accepted. And as if to focus acutely on someone who will live this out, he says to Mary, and a sword will pierce your soul too. Mary in Luke's gospel, will have to walk the journey of faith that Theophilus is being asked to walk, to consider who is this Jesus and to understand how he fits in God's plan. So we have the testimony of the, the angels that the Savior has come. We have the testimony of the two human witnesses in the temple, Simeon and Anna, that the Messiah has arrived. And we come to the third scene, and here we have a third testimony. But whereas the shepherds were looking for a savior and Simeon and Anna, the worshipers, were looking for the Messiah, here we have parents who are looking for their lost child. 
Follow with me, verses 41 to 52. Luke fast forwards, and this is the only incident that we have describing Jesus' childhood. It was a point of speculation for so many people. There's a lot of uh, heretical writings about the childhood of Jesus, about how one day in Joseph's workshop he lengthened a piece of wood, or how he got bumped into by some, some rowdy kids and he struck them dumb and mute until they repented. And all sorts of folklore developed around Jesus' childhood. But in the Gospels, this is the only account we have. And I suggest if you focus carefully, it's the only one you need. Every year, verse 41, Jesus' parents went to Jerusalem for the festival of the Passover. When he was 12 years old, they went up to the festival according to the custom. After the festival was over, while his parents were returning home, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. But they were unaware of it. And this is a very human story that anyone with children can relate to. But Jesus isn't a toddler who's ran away. Jesus is a preteen a preteen who made a choice to stay behind back in Jerusalem. They'd been celebrating the Passover, which was what they were commanded to do in the law. They would gather for a week in Jerusalem, and, and the family would come, not just the, the nuclear family, but, but the wider family and the community would come. They would gather. They would celebrate God's deliverance. When he spared them from the hand of the destroying angel and brought them out of Egypt... And after this festival is over, they go to return home. And you can almost see it playing out, can't you? Have you seen, have you seen Jesus? I thought he was with you. Whereas, you know, maybe they're like, hey, Jesus, can you, can you just go fetch some water at this place for us? Well, we don't know where he is. Oh, maybe he's up with, you know, Uncle Bob. You know, where, where's, have you seen Jesus up there? No, no. And it slowly begins to dawn on them that Jesus is not with them. They've, they've lost sight of the Lord. Thinking he was in their company, they had traveled on for a day. Then they began looking for him among their relatives and friends. When they did not find him, they went back to Jerusalem to look for him. And after three days, they found him in the temple courts, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. Now, three days is probably inclusive. It, 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 it's the first day they left Jerusalem. They traveled for a day. Then they realized he was gone, so they went back. That's another day. And then on the third day, they found him. But when they find him, there's something very striking about this scene. You see, it wasn't uncommon for people to teach in the temple courts. That was normal. You would teach in the temple courts. And the way the structure was, you would have the teacher or the rabbi, and they would teach, but then you'd have all the disciples, the learners, at the feet of the teacher. Here you have Jesus postured as a disciple, as a learner, someone who would engage with the teachers of his day, but he's not at the feet of a teacher. He's in the midst of the teachers, plural. He's right at home and he's holding court. When his parents saw him, they were astonished. Now, this is not astonished in the sense of, wow, isn't that marvelous? Jesus, there you are. <laughs> so lovely. This is astonished like my father was after I'd crashed my first car and I drove, pulled up home and he's waiting for me, struggling for words. It's the astonishment that is, I cannot believe you would do this. 
The NIV has kind of softened Mary's language a little bit. She says, the NIV says, son, why have you treated us like this? The word is literally child. <laughs> child? He's 12. He's on the cusp of manhood in Jewish society. But here he's child. Child, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. That phrase, anxiously searching, is, is the word that is used to describe agony. It's the word used on the lips of the rich man after he has died and he's begging Lazarus to, to, to drop a little drip of water onto his tongue. He says, he says, I'm being tormented. That's the word. This is Mary saying, child, why have you put us through hell? Have you ever said that to your child? <laughs> now, if Mary thinks she's going to shock Jesus into the appropriate response, she has another thing coming because it's quite the opposite. Listen to what Jesus says. Why were you searching for me? And here, the focus is not on the, it's not on, why would you want me to be with you? That's not the issue. Jesus is saying, why are you looking for me? As if to say, where would you think I would be? Why are you searching for me? What's the big hunt for? Why are you going around uncovering every stone? As if Jesus is saying, you should know I would be here. And that's in effect what he says. Didn't you know that I had to be in my father's house? Little bit of an over-translation. Jesus literally just says, didn't you know I had to be about my father's things? Or as the King James would say, didn't you know I had to be about my father's business? Now, we look at this and say, oh, wow, so wise, Jesus. He's on another level. But I want you to pull yourself back in that scene. Here's Joseph. Here's Mary. <laughs> There's Jesus. Mary's saying, your father and I are really anxious looking for you. And then Jesus says, didn't you know I had to be here about my father's things? I imagine Joseph going like, oh my goodness. Huh? <laughs> this kid. <laughs> but here you have, brothers and sisters, the third and final testimony. You see, this isn't a testimony from angels. This isn't a testimony from humans. This is a testimony from the incarnate word himself. And it's no coincidence that these are the first words spoken by Jesus in the gospel. And they will echo the last words spoken by Jesus in the gospel of Luke about his constraint to the Father in heaven to God his Father. You see, here, finding Jesus isn't exhilarating. It isn't, it, it isn't comforting. Here, if you're Mary and Joseph, finding Jesus is frustrating. And how often has this been true of us? We're going about our way. We're, we're, we're well acquainted with Jesus. We're participating in the rituals and we're participating in the customs. But somehow we've lost sight of the Lord. And you're looking for him. 
and you've lost touch with Christ. You know you're saved, you know you're sealed, but you cannot seem to find him. And when you finally are brought back, Jesus seems to be saying, why would you think I would be doing something else than what I'm doing? Mary is confronted with the reality that Jesus doesn't fall under her allegiance, but she has to fall under his allegiance. She has to fall under his allegiance to the Father's work. God is doing a work. Christ is the one who inaugurates, who, who sustains, and who completes the work. And all who would come to Christ and belong to him must accept that. And here is the third and final testimony. Jesus is saying, I have a father who is in heaven. The God who dwells in this house, that's my father. He's the one I listen to. He is the one I'm constrained to obey. And so you have here the first sign that the shepherds are given testifies to, to the kind of God that we serve, a God who, who will save those even on the margins. You feel like you're in the dung heap of life? Well, guess what? He came to a dung heap. Your life reeks and smells and it's terrible and nobody wants anything to do with you. It's only fit for the lower of society. Well, guess what? Those are the ones that God gives the birth announcement to. Those are the ones that God sends to find the Savior. And those are the ones that God says, this is the sign that you know I'm working. And to those who are waiting, who are, who are hoping in the promise of God and in the consolation of Israel, Great comfort comes from understanding that Jesus is the Messiah and he comes to those who love him and rejoice in him and they're rewarded with revelation and understanding of who Jesus is. But Mary is on a journey. She's on a journey with Jesus. If you've noticed anything about this passage, she is collecting things along the way. Twice in this text, you see that she treasures these things in her heart. By treasuring them in her heart, she's not putting them in the curio cabinet. She's not taking Polaroid pictures and, and saying, oh, wasn't that a cute time that Jesus and I had at the temple? Wasn't that great? <laughs> oh, remember the shepherds who came. Isn't that really sweet? She's not collecting mementos so that she can reminisce. The word is actually much stronger than that. When it says she's pondering these things, it means she is struggling to work them through. That's literally what it means. She is working these things through. In this story, there's so many people who are amazed at the announcement of Jesus. They're amazed at the Savior. The shepherds are amazed. The people in the temple courts are amazed. It is one thing to marvel at Jesus, to say, wow, what an interesting idea that God would redeem the world through a man. What a fascinating picture. It's an entirely other thing to comprehend, to heed the signs, and to respond in faith. But that's what Mary is doing. She is taking these testimonies and she's working them through. Yes, she loves God. Yes, she trusts him. Yes, she believes him. 
Does it all make sense to her? No. The text tells you, frankly, she did not understand. And so Mary is an encourage us, encouragement to us all when we don't understand that you, through faith in God, are able to keep the gospel even when you don't understand the gospel. You are able to lay hold of Jesus even when you are struggling to make sense of him. Here's three pictures of looking for Jesus and the question it leaves each of us having to answer is, have we found him? Have you found him? Jesus came to show you the Father. He came to bring you to God. You cannot see God unless you come to Jesus, unless you find him first. And if you found him, how have you responded? I'm gonna give you three encouragements as we wrap up this message. First of all, if you have found Jesus and he is your savior, have the urgency of these shepherds. Tell somebody. Grasp the significance of what's happened and let your love and joy overflow through your mouth so that you speak of the glorious things that God has done. At the communion table this morning, there's little cards and I encourage you, as you go up to participate in communion, on your way back, take one of those cards. On the card is a question that just says, how has the Lord shown his strength in your life? Fill that card out. Testify. Everybody in this text is testifying to what God has done. We'd like you. Testify. How has the Lord shown his strength? You can write it out by hand or flip it over. There's a QR code. You can scan it and type it in your phone if you want to do it that way. But please, take one of those cards. The second encouragement I want to leave with you. We are preparing to celebrate next week all the good that God has done for us. As we prepare to celebrate, I'm going to ask you, would you consider being a Simeon or an Anna, taking time this week, Maybe it's on a Tuesday. And just say, I'm going to fast. I'm going to devote myself to the Lord. I'm going to fast, I'm going to pray, I'm going to devote myself to the Lord, and I'm going to show my dependence and trust on him. The third and final encouragement is simply what Jesus left for us. He was about his father's business. And I just encourage you, if you know that there is business God has for you to do, would you be about it? Let's pray. Father, would you encourage us this week as we seek to walk with you? Thank you for Jesus who loves us. Encourage and strengthen us, we pray. Amen. We're going to come to a time of communion right now, which interestingly enough is also a sign this is a sign of remembrance, a sign to recall how our salvation was won. It wasn't won through horses and chariots and, 
in a great big battle, it was won through surrender and sacrifice. Jesus, in dying on the cross, freed us from our sins.